1: Hello and welcome to Demystified, with me, Ashley Stiles. Now, some of you may have found this podcast from my Wizard Radio show, Teen Scope Hour 2, formerly known as The News Broken Down. And some of you may be finding this podcast for the first time fresh, and to those, I say hello and welcome. Now, what I'd like to do with this podcast is take episodes from history that are mysterious or mysteries, uh, disappearances, odd occurrences, and look at them in a sort of modern light, with the facts that we know today, and try and see what we can make of them. I've always been passionate about history and passionate about mysteries, and what I'd really like to do is find a way for people who maybe aren't super into history, who want to look at things that are outside of mainstream history, and explain for them and show them in a way that's easy to understand and digest, some of the more interesting side episodes of history. So without further ado, here's the first episode. Enjoy. 4th of December, 1872. Captain David Morehouse of the De Gratia, a Canadian merchant brigantine bound for Gibraltar, is going about his daily business. He's scanning charts, recording positions, checking inventory. He's off the western coast of Spain, 600 nautical miles from his destination, and he hopes to be there soon. Punctuality is very important for merchant mariners in this time. Just then, he's called onto his deck by one of his sailors, When he gets there, he immediately sees what's causing all of the commotion above. Sailing towards them is another ship, another brig. But something's wrong. It's sailing in a lumbering, erratic pattern towards them. About six miles out, the sails are all wrong for the weather. Sheets and cables draping into the dark Atlantic. As the vessel closes in on them, all warning signals are ignored and nobody can be seen on deck. The only thing they know now is something's clearly amiss. So Morehouse sends his men to investigate, maybe the crew were held out below deck for some reason. He sends his first and second mates, a man named Oliver DeVoe and John Wright, on board. The first thing they notice is that this is a ship that was known to Morehouse, the Mary Celeste. But the Mary Celeste had departed New York eight days prior to the day Gratia's own departure from Hoboken, New Jersey, so given the two ships were similar and following an almost identical route, how would she manage to fall so far behind? The investigation aboard the Mary Celeste only drew more questions. The crew was nowhere to be seen. The sails had been partially set, but were damaged, with many missing ropes and rigging hanging loose. Two of the three main deck hatches were open, allowing water to spill into the hold, which drenched the cabins. But other than the water, most of the cabins were as tidy as could be expected. Almost everything was where it should be. Almost everything. The ship's only lifeboat was gone as was the ship's main compass, which had been taken from its housing. On deck had been found a makeshift sounding rod, a device used to measure water in the bilge, as well as the ship's pumps, which had been disassembled. Of the water in the bilge, there was about three and a half feet, significant, but not alarming in and of itself. The cabins were, as before, mostly tidy, save the water that had gotten in, but the captain's cabin was different. Many personal belongings were left, but his papers and navigational tools had all been taken. The ship's log proved yet more confusing. The last entry had been nine days earlier and was found in the mate's cabin. The last recorded position of the Mary Celeste had been 400 miles away. It had apparently sailed this far unmanned. Since the lifeboat was missing and no obvious signs of violence or disaster were there, it would seem that the abandonment had been orderly. So why was no order to abandon ship recorded in the ship's log, as would have been standard practice in circumstances where time would have allowed such a thing? Captain Morehouse decided to tow the Mary Celeste into Gibraltar. She'd unlikely see her final destination, but the cargo could at least be legally claimed as salvage for a reward if turned into the authorities, so despite slow going, the ships arrived on December the 12th and 13th. The salvage hearings were a farce, however. Frederick Solly Flood, the Attorney General of Gibraltar, became convinced that no ship could possibly sail 400 miles with no crew, and suspected that foul play must have been involved. He suggested that the crew of the Mary Celeste, having drunk the spirits in its cargo, actually murdered the captain and his family with him and then fled in the lifeboat. But this theory fell apart quickly when investigations found numerous discrepancies. Firstly, the stains on the captain's sword that they found weren't blood, and cut marks in the wood found by Royal Naval Captains would have been more likely made by unattended rigging. Character witnesses from America arrived and testified that neither the crew of the Mary Celeste nor the crews of De Gratia were of a mutinous or uh, lying disposition and the inquiry ended up foundering. The Mary Celeste was sailed onto Genoa to deliver what remained of its cargo but under a different captain. Morehouse didn't get off quite so easy though he was instead requested to remain in Gibraltar because he was still under suspicion. Frederick Solly Flood still believed that Morehouse knew more than he was letting on and was perhaps even somehow involved himself in the disappearance of the crew of the Mary Celeste. But eventually he was released and paid for the salvage, £1,700, merely one-fifth of the value of the ship. Given the hazard of bringing her in, it was expected that the payout would be up to three times that amount. As for the Mary Celeste, she continued on, but after the sensationalised stories of murder and mutiny had spread throughout the newspapers, nobody wanted to buy her or crew her. After several attempts to make her turn a profit, since she'd been resold at a massive loss, she was eventually used in an insurance fraud attempt and deliberately sunk off the coast of Haiti. The owners were tried, and whilst they were acquitted, one went mad, another committed suicide, and the rest had their reputations irreparably ruined, especially that of the captain, who was charged with barrantry, the crime of deliberately sinking your own ship, which could have carried the death penalty. That, and the fact that the three captains died prematurely sailing her, caused many to believe that the ship itself was cursed, It was this curse that brought some sense of justice to the men who'd sunk her and escaped the courts. And it was this curse that caused the disappearance of the crew of the Mary Celeste. Well, now that we've gone over the story of the Mary Celeste, at least insofar as it concerns us, let's go back to the beginning and look at the facts as we know them. The Mary Celeste was built in Spencer's Island, Nova Scotia, as a British ship in 1861 known as the Amazon. She was eventually transferred to American Ownership and Registration in 1868 where she acquired the name the Mary Celeste and sailed uneventfully until her 1872 voyage. Now, her first captain was a man named Robert McClellan, but he didn't do too well. On the maiden voyage in June of 1861, the Amazon sailed to five islands to take on a cargo of timber to be sailed to London. After supervising the loading of the ship, however, McClellan fell ill. His condition worsened, and the Amazon returned to Spencer's Island, where McClellan died on June the 19th, less than a month into the maiden voyage. A man named John Parker took over as captain, and resumed the voyage to London, during which the Amazon encountered further misadventure, colliding with fishing equipment off Eastport, and after leaving London, ran into and sank another brig in the English Channel. Parker remained in command for two years, during which the Amazon worked in the West Indies. She went to France in November of 1861 and was subject of a painting, one of the few known paintings of the Mary Celeste that we have. In 1863, Parker was succeeded by William Thompson, who remained in command until 1867. Not much happened in these years, except, however, in October of that year. The Amazon was driven ashore at Cape Breton Island in a storm and was so badly damaged, her owners abandoned her as a wreck. However, later she was acquired as a derelict by one Alexander McBean of Nova Scotia. Within a month, however, McBean had sold the wreck to a local businessman, who then again sold it to Richard Haynes, an American mariner from New York. Haynes paid nearly 2,000 US dollars for the wreck and then spent nearly 10,000 restoring it. He made himself her captain and registered her in 1868 as an American vessel under the new name the Mary Celeste. In October of 1869, however, the ship was seized by Haynes's creditors after he'd racked up an enormous debt. You can see how people are starting to believe that this ship might be a bit of bad luck. It was then sold to a New York consortium headed by one James Winchester. Now, here's where the story gets important where we start coming in. So in early of 1872, the ship underwent a major refit costing $10,000. You'll remember that's almost as much as uh, the previous owner had spent just repairing her from the wreck damage. Her length was increased, her beam and breadth were increased. Structural changes were made. A second deck was added. New timbers were replaced. Basically, a whole ship of Theseus situation where the Mary Celeste is transformed into a ship that is actually going to make somebody some money, or well, that's the plan at least. Now, the consortium changed makeup a bunch of times, but Winchester was still there with six twelfths of the stock and four twelfths were held by the ship's new captain, one Benjamin Spooner Briggs. Now, he's important for this story because he is the ill-fated captain who would end up disappearing. Born in Wareham, Massachusetts on April 24th, 1835, Briggs was one of five sons of sea captain Nathan Briggs, all but one of whom went to sea. Two of them became captains. He was an observant Christian and read the Bible regularly, bore witness to his faith at prayer meetings. In 1862, he married his cousin, which at the time was not as weird as it would be today, and enjoyed a honeymoon in the Mediterranean. He had two children, his son Arthur and his daughter Sophia, who was born in 1870. By the time of Sophia's birth, Briggs had achieved a relatively high standing within his profession. Nevertheless, he considered retiring from seafaring to go into business with his brother Oliver, also a seafarer, who had grown tired of the wandering life. But they didn't go ahead with this. Instead, each invested their savings in a share of a ship, Oliver in the Julia A. Holcock, and Benjamin in the Mary Celeste. In October of 1872, he took command of the Mary Celeste for her first voyage following the extensive New York refit, which was to take her to Genoa in Italy. He arranged for his wife and his infant daughter to accompany him, while his school-aged son was left at home. I wonder how his son felt about that decision, looking back after what ended up happening. Briggs chose the crew for the voyage with care. His first mate, Albert G. Richardson, was married to a niece of Winchester, the guy who owned most of the socks in the ship, and had sailed under Briggs before, and so was trusted. Second mate, Andrew Gilling, about 25 years old, was Danish in origin, and although born in New York, he was very well trusted as well. The steward, the newly married Edward Head, was signed on with a personal recommendation from Winchester himself. The four general seamen, all Germans from the Frisian Islands, brothers Volkert and Botz Lorenzen, Adrian Martens and Gottlieb Gudershal, were all described by a later testimonial as peaceable and first-class sailors. In a letter to his mother just days before the voyage, Biggs declared himself satisfied with the ship and its crew. By all accounts, all of them were top-notch, well-versed in seamanship, all dedicated to their profession. Of course, this doesn't necessarily guarantee a successful voyage. Anybody who knows a sea will tell you that luck is as important as skill, but this will factor into a number of decisions that we see made later on that will become rather interesting and rather suspicious with this context. So what happened before the voyage? On October the 20th of 1872, Briggs arrives at Pier 50 at East River, New York City, to supervise the loading of the ship's cargo for Genoa. 1,701 barrels of poisonous denatured alcohol, also called methylated spirits. A week later, Briggs was joined by his wife and his baby daughter. Now, he wanted to leave the following Tuesday. However, weather delayed him until the 7th of November. Now, whilst Mary Celeste were preparing to sail... The Canadian Day Gratia lay in nearby Hoboken, New Jersey, just across the bay, awaiting their own cargo of petroleum. Her captain, David Morehouse, her first mate Oliver DeVoe, both Nova Scotians, highly experienced and respected seamen. Now, as captains with common interests, it's likely that Morehouse and Briggs actually knew each other, if only casually some accounts assert that they were close friends who on the evening of the departure dined together but the evidence for this is limited to a recollection by morehouse's widow 50 years after the event so we don't know about that to be a certainty the day gratia departed for gibraltar on the 15th of november eight days after the marie celeste following the same general route So the evidence is relatively inconclusive that Morehouse knew Briggs deeply personally. Uh, They'd probably met and had similar cargoes, similar captaincies bound for the same destination, were going to be in close geographic proximity. It would have made sense that they would have met beforehand and probably after had Briggs arrived. I think this serves to exonerate Morehouse somewhat. It seems like he would be the first guy under suspicion if he was to have done something to Briggs or to his crew, which means that if he was planning to do something to Briggs or the crew of the Mary Celeste, he would have had to have taken that into consideration. He was already under suspicion enough when he arrived in Gibraltar with the Mary Celeste and its cargo, but no crew and no explanation as to what had happened. And the character witnesses, who would have known that Morehouse would have known Briggs, might have taken this into account when they testified that they thought it was unlikely that he would do it. Now, that's not ironclad, but we'll get into the theories in a second. Well, that's all we know out of New York. Let's get to the derelict. Now, all of the theories, or most of the theories, about what happened to the Mary Celeste are hinge on the idea of the abandonment. The lifeboat was missing, along with the whole crew. No signs of a struggle. Lines were frayed leading into the sea which many have interpreted as being lines that would have been used to secure the lifeboat to the ship, which makes sense if you think about it. In the event of emergency, Captain Briggs may have ordered a temporary evacuation. If the situation resolves, you use the line to reel yourself back in. If not, cut the line and go adrift. If the life was somehow severed, getting the lifeboat back to the ship would have depended on rowing, if they'd have had oars. This could be supported by the absence of the navigational tools. If the captain had anticipated potentially leaving, he'd have needed them to get the lifeboat to shore. Long odds, but sailors have faced worse and survived. And if we're working out for this theory, then the question that really needs to be answered is why did the captain decide to abandon the ship? But there's a problem with this right out of the get-go. Firstly, It's not at all common practice to do this. It makes almost no sense to attach yourself to a ship that you think is about to sink or explode regardless of how quickly you think you can detach it. Secondly, a lot of sailors have argued in the years since that even in rough weather, even if it was sinking, the Mary Celeste would be a better bet than a lifeboat regardless of how damaged. It can hold more supplies, it can take more water, it can hold more people, it can sail further and faster, it's more likely to be spotted. The question is, why would you abandon the Mary Celeste? The only logical explanation is if you were guaranteed certain that it was going to go under. Why indeed? The first proposal is that there was a malfunction with the pumps. Before transporting spirits, the Mary Celeste had shipped coal. The coal dust could have clogged the pumps, hence why they were found on the deck disassembled. If Briggs had had a problem with his chronometer, which is a device used for naval navigation, he may have felt that abandoning ship was safer if he'd have mistaken how close to shore he was. The problem with this idea, though, was why would Briggs abandon ship? The water in the bilge was a lot bigger than usual, but not critically bad. And for most captains, I'd like to point this out now as we go into our theories, abandoning ship in any circumstance other than the absolute most dire was seen as a terrible black mark on your career. In fact, in the Royal Navy, for the longest time, it was the policy that regardless of why you abandoned your ship, if you did, you would be immediately brought for court-martial, regardless of justification. So captains would only abandon their ships, generally speaking, in the absolute most extreme circumstance. If Briggs was as experienced a seaman as people thought him to be, why would he have abandoned ship? Does it suffice to say that he just misjudged how much water there was? One explanation is that if the hull was full of cargo and it being a ship that had recently had a new deck added, Briggs might not have been able to assess accurately how much water was in the hold. Maybe this is why he used the makeshift sounding rod. If that was the case, he may have abandoned ship to be on the safe side given that his family was on board. Now, the weather wasn't ideal at the time. Maybe Briggs became convinced that the ship was sinking? However, I have another theory, the second theory, and this is rather more interesting, I think, and it has to do with some basic chemistry that the crew of the Mary Celeste probably would have appreciated knowing. So, methylated spirits, or denatured alcohol, as they call it in America, produces a highly flammable gas when it evaporates, much like natural gas. The barrels in the hold of the Mary Celeste were not all made of the same wood. Nine of the 1701 barrels in the hold were empty. Those nine barrels were recorded as being made of red oak, not white oak like the others. Red oak is also known to be a more porous wood than white oak, and therefore more likely to leak. So here's the idea. The hold therefore fills with this flammable gas, which could have been ignited by any kind of road spark, Uh, the cooping on two barrels colliding with each other, or a sailor's pipe, or anything like that. Now, you might think... Surely if the hold is filled with flammable gas and it ignites, it blows the ships to Davy Jones' locker, or at least it would have left some kind of scorch mark. But you'd actually be wrong. An experiment carried out by University College London in 2006 on a replica of the Mary Celeste found that the explosion, at first, appeared to be a massive fireball, but was actually relatively cool and would have created an enormous amount of pressure, noise and heat without scorching the wood or damaging the ship. The pressure was also sufficient to blow open the hatches, which was the reason why maybe they weren't battened down properly. So the theory goes like this. Some spark ignites the gas. A massive explosion rocks the ship and produces a spectacular and terrifying gout of flame. The crew and captain decide that the ship is going to be done for and abandon the ship. Either they row away under the impression that the ship was imminently going to explode, or they secure the line for reasons that are equally logical and illogical. The ship then recovers and has little trace of the explosion, a lot of fire, a lot of noise, as well as a lot of pressure, but no actual effect. Now, you may have seen this in real life. If you've ever lit a Bunsen burner in chemistry or burned excess gas off of a stovetop, there's the initial whoosh where the fire flares up, but then no actual substance behind it. The third main theory is the idea that weather phenomenon caused the abandonment. So there's excess water in the bilge. That alone would not have been enough to warrant abandonment. That's pretty clear. But if a water spout hit the ship, which is basically like a twister out at sea that sucks water up into it, or a sea quake had happened, which is like an earthquake but in the sea which causes big waves and shock vibrations, Briggs may have decided that the ship was actually about to go under, so say for example, water spout hits the ship, chucks a lot of water and sea spray everywhere, Briggs goes downstairs to the hold, and suddenly sees lots of water in the hold, maybe he gets spooked. Alternatively, he might have feared an explosion without one. If a sea quake had knocked the barrels over and they'd started spilling, the hatches being opened could have been an attempt at airing out. It had occurred before that ships carrying alcohol had leaked cargo and exploded as a result of that. But the main problem with this idea is that if Briggs was actively managing spilled liquid alcohol, unlike the porous barrel theory, he would have been aware of the damage. So why would he abandon the ship? He knows the alcohol is spilled. He knows to keep lit flames away from it. He's opened the hatches to manage it. Why suddenly turn tail and abandon ship? Then there were the theories of mutiny and murder. Now, these are the ones that got by far and away the most publicity then and now as well, I guess, because they're exciting. The audience at the time was high on penny dreadfuls and piratical thrillers like Treasure Island, and they loved the idea that a real-life mutiny could still conceivably happen. The main problem here, though, is there's no sign of struggle. The ship's in relatively good order, what was at first thought to be blood turned out not to be, and the cut marks on the ship were not conclusively proven to be from a fight. In terms of weapons, the year was 1872, so it's likely some form of gunpowder weapon would have been on the ship. So why no gunshots? Other than that, the ship's marlin spikes, like a blunt knife used for working a sail, boat axes used for cutting ropes in emergencies, maybe some swords, but that's less likely and none of them were found and none of them with marks of uh, a fight on them. Moreover, if the crew did overpower the captain, why would they flee in the lifeboat? They'd taken this ship. Why not sail it to wherever it was they wanted to go? Why would you kill the captain, his family, and those loyal to him for no discernible reason, and then flee in a tiny lifeboat on the open ocean. And, if the captain did beat the mutineers off, it would have had to have been a total bloodbath for there to be so few people left that he couldn't have sailed into port by himself. The Mary Celeste was crewed by three men in the salvage tow. That was in extremis, but it's doable, and Briggs would have known that. So he would have had to have suffered maybe 80% casualties in the mutiny effort in order for it to be genuinely impossible to sail the ship back in. Then are the more out-there theories. At the time, some thought it might have been a giant squid. We now know today that the bigger squids generally live deep in the ocean. They surface usually when they die, because they float. Perhaps one of them could have grabbed a single man off the lifeboat, but it wouldn't have been able to take the entire crew. That's just not possible. Strand Magazine published an account, an alleged survivor's account from 1913, wherein all but one were eaten by sharks or drowned after a makeshift platform they constructed to hold a swimming contest had collapsed into the sea. This was ultimately unverified and has a lot of logical inconsistencies, such as... Why would they hold a swimming contest in the middle of the ocean rather than closer to land? How did they construct the makeshift platform? And if they could all swim, hence why they were holding a swimming contest, how did none of them get back to the ship? Did they all get eaten by sharks? How did that one survivor survive? Another story from 1924 posited that the crew happened upon another derelict, a seaworthy steamer filled with gold and silver, who then decided to sail it to Spain, leaving the Mary Celeste and seeking a new life. The problem with this is the informant of this account described himself as the bosun of the Mary Celeste. The crew manifest of the Mary Celeste did not ever list a bosun on board. Finally, some have suggested aliens or the Bermuda Triangle being the cause. That latter one is particularly interesting because the Bermuda Triangle is on the opposite side of the Atlantic to where the Mary Celeste was. So what happened to the Mary Celeste? Here's what I proposed based on the evidence, a timeline. 7th November, 1872. the Mary leaves New York for Genoa with its crew. Captain Briggs, his wife, his child, and seven crewmen, as well as their cargo of methylated spirits. Between that date and the abandonment, maybe even earlier, the red oak barrels start to leak gas through the porous wood, which slowly starts to fill the cargo hold. Maybe it's masked by the smell of the bilge, maybe this is the smell they expect. Either way, they don't detect it. On the 25th November or maybe the 26th, all we know is the last log was written on the 25th, something ignites the gas in the hold. This creates a massive explosion accompanied by a suitably scary fireball, as well as a pressure wave of hot air that would blow open doors and at least the main hatch. This scares the crew so much that they decide to abandon the ship Now, even though there's no fire, the crew can still smell the smell of the burnt fumes, and with an explosion that loud, all of them are convinced that the best option is to abandon ship and the lifeboat. Now, I think it's more likely that they did attempt to tie themselves to the ship. Briggs didn't seem like the kind to be easily spooked, so maybe he decided to tie the line because his crew were convinced that the ship was going to go under. His crew thought that they were going down, and he decided to play it safe, which explains the illogical decision. The line then somehow gets severed and the lifeboats can't return to the ship and get swallowed by the sea as the weather worsens. The Mary Celeste drifts for several days and is found derelict by the crew of the Day Gratia. Does this explain everything? No, unfortunately. Why would Briggs not check the damage himself before ordering to abandon ship? And if he was convinced that the ship was sinking or that it was actually going to explode more, why tie up to it? If he was sure the ship was going under and didn't tie up to it, well, that seems like an unusually nervous move for a man described repeatedly as calm, cool under pressure, and an experienced sailor. Ultimately, we'll never be certain. The Mary Celeste being sunk in an insurance scam and the fact that she had a later career ruins any chance we have of studying her further for clues, and the wave of public opinion regarding the idea of foul play, murder, and mutiny tainted the discourse at the time, preventing a totally level-headed investigation. Finally, the fact that the disappearance took place at sea limits how much we can find. For example, we'll likely never find the lifeboat with the crew because if it did sink, it could be anywhere at the bottom of the Atlantic and that was well over 100 years ago. So I suppose that whilst I do like my theory, one would argue that it makes sense, you know, it's not my theory, it's the theory that I borrowed, the evidence is all we'll ever have and likely all we ever will end up having. And so this is kind of the best we're going to have to do. But that is the mystery of the Mary Celeste. This has been Demystified with Ashley Stiles. This episode was written and produced by me, Ashley Stiles. It's been hosted by Wizard Studios, and music was provided by productioncrate.com. Thank you very much for listening.
0: Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say.